again, free thinkers, and welcome back to the Free Thought Project podcast. My name is Jason Bassler, and joining me today is the Free Thought Project Editor-in-Chief, Matt Agarist. So first off, I wanted to apologize for missing the podcast last week. I know on the last podcast, I told you guys we were back on track for this year, but I had the opportunity last week to go to the Rage Against the War Machine rally in Washington, D.C., which coincided with the same day we usually record our podcast. So my apologies on that. The upside to this, however, was that I actually got to meet our guest today in the flesh at the rally because he was one of the speakers. Our guest this week is Mr. Daniel McAdams. Daniel is the executive director of the Ron Paul Institute for Peace and Prosperity and has been Ron Paul's right-hand man since 2001 until Dr. Paul's retirement in 2012. Daniel was also a journalist based in Budapest for years and worked for the British Helsinki Human Rights Group monitoring human rights and elections in different countries. It was a pleasure discussing the rally in D.C. with Daniel, which opened up the conversation to the billions sent to Ukraine, the U.S. war machine, the Nordstrom II pipeline, and prospects of a new emergence of the anti-war movement. Welcome to the Free Thought Project podcast, Daniel. This is uh, perfect timing because I, I just met you on Sunday at the Rage Against the War Machine rally in Washington, D.C., where you, Dr. Ron Paul, uh, Jimmy Dore, and a handful of other powerful speakers ex-Congress members, anti-war activists, journalists, we all came together to protest the Ukraine-Russia war. And, you know, we were lucky enough to get some good weather. There was a decent turnout as well, although I guess I was hoping for a few more people. But we certainly have a lot to talk about today, uh, including the anniversary of the war in Ukraine, maybe some controversial tweets you made a couple weeks ago about Putin. And the recent nuclear saber rattling, which is currently going on right now. But first, I thought I would get your take on the rally. And if you thought it was a success, I actually heard it was the largest anti-war protest since the Iraq war in the US. But what were your thoughts on the event? Um, I think overall, it was very positive. You know, there were some there were some hiccups and glitches. Um, I share your view that it should have been a bigger audience. And it's a shame that it wasn't. I'm not sure exactly why. I do know that when some of the left groups uh, are putting stuff on, they have a lot more infrastructure. And, you know, to their credit, the People's Party and the LP, like this is their maiden voyage. So, you know, it's tough to put things together, even on a small scale, but on a broad scale, large scale like this, can imagine how hard it is. And, you know, there's a lot of apathy. There's a lot of misinformation. There's a lot of propaganda out there. And so I can see a lot of people just wanting to stay home. Um, so uh, it was, I think it was, it was far less than I had hoped, 
but you know there's a there are a lot of things else you know that went on and i'm sure you you remember just uh backstage talking to people um, making connections in real life with people that you've been in contact with for me that was extremely important um people that i had never met in person like max blumenthal um just sitting down and talking for a couple minutes establishing that kind of human connection um i think if the groups are going to go forward and go ahead uh, particularly with the idea that this is a beyond left-right coalition, uh, then that kind of human touch is important. Uh, we all know <laughs> that the uh, in the in the world of Twitter and other semi-anonymous uh, social media, you know, people can be more bombastic than they are when they just when they know that person in real life. So there are a lot of positives and a few negatives, but um, but overall, I'm certainly grateful to all the organizers for putting this together. I mean, it was a thankless task, and they pulled it off. So that was a miracle. I feel like uh, it was a huge monumental task, you know, no pun intended there. And <laughs> <laughs> just the money, the effort, um, you know, they've been planning this and speaking about it and organizing it since I think around like late October. So uh, there was certainly a lot of effort that went into this. And I guess that's maybe why also I was a little uh, discouraged that the the turnout wasn't huge. I mean, I don't know what the the final counts that you heard was, I heard it was maybe like 1500, maybe a little bit less at times, but yeah. And I I'm right there with you, Daniel. It felt like even prior to the event, there was a lot of bickering going on by, you know, some of our friends on the left saying that, I don't know, some of the speakers that, you know, represented the left maybe weren't as pure as they should have been, or uh, there was like some influence by the, the proud boys, or there's going to be some alt writers that attended the rally. Therefore, you know, it would be a cardinal sin if they showed up there as well to, you know, protest against anti-war. And then our, our friends on the right too, or maybe a little, and I don't know all the ins and outs of this, but maybe a little overly critical about the whole Scott Ritter thing. And I don't know, I guess calling him a pedophile and that kind of uh, poisoning the well. So, I mean, it, it seemed like there was already, uh, you know, some backlash towards the event before it even happened. I think Jimmy Dore hit the nail on the head when he said, you know, like that the house is on fire, guys. Like we need to come together to stop this war machine. Hundred billion dollars plus that's been sent to Ukraine. I mean, all, all these different factors. So to me, that was certainly, uh, I don't know, a bit discouraging. You know, it, it seems like this is not the right time to be uh, engaging in identity politics. You know, like this is the time that we should be uniting and coming together. And you're your very powerful yet short speech, um, I think it was around three minutes or so, you said it's not enough to be anti-war, as nice as that is. You must be anti-war propaganda because war propaganda greases the wheels of the war machine. And I know you gave some context to it uh, during your speech, but I think this is an important point to expand on. Do you mind maybe sharing what the impetus was behind that and what prompted you to say that during your speech? Well, you see it all the time in ostensibly anti-war voices, and this goes back to the Iraq War, and I'm sure before, but we could mark it. We could mark it. We could go to Milosevic. We could go to Yugoslavia, whatever. Um, I, let's just, for safety's sake, go to the Iraq War, where you know the demonization process begins well before there's any discussion of U.S. involvement, and what that does, it just softens up the battlefield. You know, it gets it gets yeah. people in the mindset that uh, Saddam, uh, you know, Gaddafi, any of these people are absolute monsters. The new Hitler, Slobo was the new Hitler, uh, Saddam was the new Hitler, Putin is the new Hitler. Uh, you have to start by getting the people propagandized. And, you know, because Russia is the big enchilada here, 
we've had five years of this. I mean, Hillary Clinton launched this whole psyop uh, with her um, with, with her uh, with the RussiaGate scam, which was completely top to bottom, absolutely fake, and poisoned the entire Trump presidency. Uh, that for all of its faults, and there were plenty, um, could have been and should have been uh, the most successful anti-war presidency maybe in our lifetimes. So you got to start by getting people on the path of condemning the person that the regime that the neocons want condemned. And as I said later in that speech, it, you could say, hey, Saddam's a monster, but I don't think we should go to war. They don't care about the second part. That's fine. You're just a progressive. You're just a libertarian. I know you guys. I mean, uh, you know, but just say that one part for us, please. Say it quietly if you have to, but just say it. And that's what it's all about. And that's why I call it the Rockwell rule, you know, after Lou Rockwell. Don't ever say what the regime wants you to say about the designated enemy of the day. And so there are a lot of libertarian writers who are otherwise good people. Uh, but and I won't name names, but you probably know who I'm talking about. And they all they all go 100% in for the war propaganda, thinking that somehow they'll still be acceptable to the cocktail parties inside the Beltway. No, I condemned him. Oh yes, absolutely. I'm, I'm not for the war, but yes, of course, I, I condemned him. You don't score any points. You don't have anything on the balance sheet in your favor after this. It's a slippery slope, and they want you to get on board. It's crazy too. Like it's they're not even the establishment, the the military industrial complex isn't even changing their playbook. They just use the same tired patterns over and over, and it always works at least on half of the population. You know, we saw we saw the propaganda work immediately in la, la, in February of 2022 when you know 90% of Twitter donned their Ukrainian flag emojis in their in their profile. You know, and <clears throat> now like. Like, as you guys were saying earlier about the the turnout at the anti-war rally, you know, like when when people railed against the Afghan and Iraq wars back, you know, back in the early 2000s, there were there were tens of thousands, if not a hundred thousand people that would turn out to these anti-war rallies. And it just speaks to the nature of the divide that we see, you know, like they're just being pushed on everybody. And it that's what's it's kind of discouraging to see that that's a. Uh, you know, that, that it's actually kind of working, you know, like there's, there's rifts inside the libertarian party of, you know, people supporting the, the, the invasion of Ukraine. They're like, Oh, just like you just said, Daniel, about how they're, they're now buying into this, the same, the same bullshit tactic that they just continue to, to use over and over again. And it works. I mean, why wouldn't they use it? Right. And it works. <clears throat> yeah. Like the, it, and, People are so blinded, like MSNBC, for instance, used to be completely anti-war. Like they they railed against Bush, you know, throughout. I remember Keith Olbermann and Rachel Maddow. They they got they made names for themselves railing against the Bush era wars when we we're, you know, invading Iraq and Afghanistan. And now they do the exact opposite, you know, like Jason sent me a clip that we wanted to play. I guess that might even be a good time to play it now. Let's do it of Rachel Maddow railing against the anti-war protesters, like mocking people in Washington, D.C. I don't know if you saw that, Daniel, but... Uh, I try to avoid her. <laughs> yeah, I'm, 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 I'll play it right now, and we could... Uh, you got to hear this, though, because it's, it's such overt propaganda. And I mean truly random rally on the National Mall in Washington, D.C. A rally in support of Russia, I guess, with all given all the Russian flags, at least a rally against the U.S. supporting Ukraine in 
trying to stand up against the Russian invasion of their country. This was a tiny event. It was small. It was a weird assemblage of Americans. There were Proud Boys there. There were some of the white supremacist groups you'd recognize from the Unite the Right rally in Charlottesville a few years ago. Um, also represented prominently the remains of the bizarre Lyndon LaRouche cult. There were a lot of people with Russian flags, also the occasional flag of the former Soviet Union. Also, at least one person who guest hosts for Tucker Carlson on the Fox News Channel was there as a featured speaker. There were anti-vaccine conspiracy theorists, a lot of them. There were cryptocurrency promoters. It was a really weird group. It was a small rally and a weird one. Um, but that's what it looks like. That's the assemblage of short straws and split ends and loose change and loose electrons that's advocating in this country that Russia's in the right in this war and America should be on Putin's side as he keeps invading other countries. I mean, no disrespect to the Americans who turned out as part of this small event this weekend, but it's it's not like they represent a big constituency that is arguing for this pro-Russia point of view. I mean, for real, <laughs> no one there was in support of Putin invading Ukraine and, and other countries. Like, what other countries? What what other countries, Rachel? You know, oh, no, I mean, it, it, I can't believe she packed so much bullcrap into like what two minutes of talk. You know, I, I certainly didn't see any Proud Boys. I, uh, I saw two Russian flags, uh, and you know what? Of people who are there who support Russia, who cares? Uh, you know, it doesn't bother me at all. The guys, the communists there, I don't care. I don't give a shit who shows up, yeah. you know, my, for me, I showed up because we, as you pointed out earlier on, we have authorized a hundred billion dollars to go ostensibly to Ukraine. But in fact, it goes directly to the U S military industrial complex. In fact, just as we speak, uh, they announced $2 billion more in military aid. That money goes directly to, to uh, bullet makers in the U.S., uh, a direct contract with bullet makers. That's what I was there for. Uh, but, you know, like you say, MSNBC, for even the, even the guys you mentioned who were okay, when we were working in Dr. Paul's office on the Hill in the early days of the Iraq War, we watched a show called Buchanan and Press. I mean, that tells you how great MSNBC was. Uh, mm. You know, the right-wing populist uh, Buchanan, and the lefty bill press having a show where they agreed uh, that the war sucked. I mean, that go from there to Rachel Maddow. That's like in a nutshell how far we've fallen intellectually as a country. It really is. It's mind boggling, man. And then the blatant lies and slander that she's throwing around there. She she's like, oh, and now a, a guest host on Tucker Carlson. That's a former congresswoman who's currently active duty military and the <laughs> only person, you know, that she's actually been to war. And she was one of the very few Congress people who has been to war and understands the the dangers of, of pursuing this war. And she calls her uh, a guest host on Tucker Carlson just to, to to push those identity policy politics even further and oh man it's it's that that was one of the most enraging video I shouldn't have I'm kind <laughs> of with you because right now I'm I'm like fight or flight I'm so PO'd I want to want to smash something I'm not I'm not usually a violent guy but <laughs> I hear you I feel you white supremacists 
How, how the hell did she know there were white supremacists there? The white supremacists are all in Ukraine doing their Hitler salutes. <laughs> exactly. We're giving about? billions to the white supremacists <laughs> and, and, and the Nazi regime, the Azov battalion over there, who promises to take over as soon as they spend all the U.S. money defeating Russia, you know? <laughs> Yeah. And, you know, as as Daniel pointed out, I saw approximately two flags, two Russian flags. That's it. Two. They're probably and, feds, right? Yeah, exactly. Totally. They, it's probably Rachel. <laughs> they made it a point specifically to get behind where the camera was live streaming behind the speakers. And it only seemed like it was only certain speakers, Angela McArdle being one of them. Yeah. And sure enough, you know, the very next day I'm, I'm flying home and I'm, I'm seeing posts by libertarians saying this was not a good look for the libertarian party. Yeah. This isn't going to bode well for Angela McArdle. And it's like, come on, guys, like, obviously, there's going to be people who show up there under different denominations, different mindsets, different philosophies. And, you know, th that's just part of what happens at protests and rallies. And there was people there with Ukrainian flags as well. There was people there with uh, communist Soviet flags, you know. So, I mean, what's the point? Can we, We're really going to poison the well and say the whole thing was a wash. The whole thing is embarrassing because a couple trolls showed up and intentionally tried to evoke some type of emotion. I mean, have these people never heard of January 6th where half the people were feds that were causing the violence? Right. Yeah. <laughs> it's the naivete is incredible. It must be it must be self-selected. I don't get it. You know, I mean, and, but the first thing I'm sorry to interrupt, but when, when I was when we first got there, I arrived with Dr. Paul. We were like about an hour late. The first thing I saw was the Russian flags and the I, don't, I forget who I turned to and said, well, we know where the feds are. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the, the audacity of a mad to call uh, the Rouge. Uh, a cult, you know, I mean, I'm not particularly a, a huge fan, but even still, I mean, if we're going to talk about cults, like maybe we should talk about <laughs> the most dangerous war cult in, in the world, the U.S. military, the U.S. government. The neocons. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. As you mentioned, though, Daniel, another two billion was recently announced today to be going to Ukraine in the form of drones, ammunition and aid, along with uh, new sanctions and tariffs against Russia. And according to my calculations, I don't think there's any like actual total number anywhere on the internet, but this now is $117.5 billion that has been uh, sent to Ukraine. And a few months back, we actually covered it where a White House advisor said they have no way of tracking where that money goes once it enters Ukraine. It's, it literally enters what he said, a black hole. And you know, I was doing some of the math this morning. $117.5 billion is actually more than 131 different countries' GDP. <laughs> I mean, it's okay. And then to give you some more perspective here, the total US foreign aid that was allocated to all countries in 2021 was only 32 billion. Yeah. Right. So, and even more perspective here, just to show where, you know, their allegiance is, our government and the way that they spend our money, childhood cancer research was only allocated 78 million in, in 2022. So, I mean, this is, you know, in my opinion, this is a complete disaster, a catastrophe as far as the way that they're, you know, allocating our money. And let's not forget a couple of weeks ago, Biden even said he's going to send Abram tanks in after saying months before that, that that would be an act of war. So, I guess my question to you is like, why do you suppose there's so much silence about this, not only from the mainstream press, but it seems like conservatives aren't really talking about it. I mean, academics, even the alternative media. And I mean, of course, there's a few of us making noise, but like, are people just desensitized to government spending and, and just basically acclimated to the war machine at this point? 
Well, they're not really feeling it, or, or they are feeling it in their pocketbooks, but they don't know because the Americans are the most heavily propagandized people on the face of the earth. Uh, they're told it's everything but what the obvious is. Uh, now, with that $130 billion, I would just say, um, <clears throat> I think it's all been authorized, but not necessarily appropriated. Um, and and, and it's, it's, it doesn't change anything, though, because the, the point is that, you know, Senator Paul said at the very beginning when it was only $40 billion, with just a drop in the bucket, right? Yeah. He said, well, can we at least get an amendment in here to have an auditor? And that's similar to the um, Special Inspector General for Afghan Reconstruction, someone like that who's kind of above the fray and has the job of just looking where this stuff goes. And, of course, he was, he was not only laughed out of the Congress, he was called Putin's apologist, supporter of the attack, you know, and basically he comes out looking better every day because not only can we not track the money, but I would say more importantly, we can't track the weapons that have been sent over there. And I was listening to a really fascinating podcast a couple of days ago uh, that was uh, Gonzalo Lira out in uh, Kharkov, uh, but also Larry Johnson of the CIA and Michael Vlahos at SICE and on the Navy War College. And they were talking about um, things being for sale on the dark web uh, that the U.S. had sent to Ukraine. We're talking about like Stinger missiles, yeah. Javelin, uh, I mean, Javelin missiles, sorry. Javelin missiles selling for pennies on the dollar. Uh, and I forget which one of them made the good point that you, know, you talk about some head of a drug cartel. Uh, maybe there's a seven, uh, 767 full of passengers, but one of those passengers has to be a target. These guys don't have any scruples. Uh, they'll shoot a sidewinder or whatever it is up there and blow the whole plane out of the sky. We're going to see a lot of really scary, terrible things happening because all of these weapons were sent over there with absolutely no intention, no ability to track where they're going. It's going to be like Afghanistan on steroids. Fast and furious. Yep, exactly. And recently they had uh, several of the Ukrainian politicians and uh, like House members all resign uh, because of that corruption scandal, right? Like after we started sending them aid, they, they, they suddenly have mansions and like Ferraris yeah. <laughs> and, and they, 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 you know, they're, they're logging all these extravagant vacations. It's, it's crazy. They all, they got a 30, I believe their parliament got a 30% pay increase last, uh, last October. It's, um, it's like a kick in the teeth and it's, it's overt and it's, we're, we're watching it unfold in front of us and no one even gives a shit. You know, they spent like just 12 days into the invasion. I, if you guys remember, uh, Dmitry Peskov, uh, like the Russian ambassador offered a peace accord, right? He said, um, you know, if Ukraine doesn't join NATO and then lets Donetsk and Luhansk regions have their independence, then we'll pull out right now. I think at the time, like maybe, you know, a few dozen people had died and maybe a couple of bombs had been, had gone off. And then, you know, the Western powers discouraged Zelensky from taking that. And now look, you know, we're at hundreds of thousands of dead people. Like we're uh, like, you know, like Jason just said, $117 billion in the hole. We're on the verge of nuclear war with Russia and all this shit could have ended. <laughs> and, and, yeah. and instead the U S wanted it. And, and obviously this is, you know, to enrich the military industrial complex. But like, I guess my question, Daniel is like, where do you see this ending? Like, this isn't like war with Afghanistan or war with Iraq. You know, these aren't men in caves with very little resources who can just hide in the hills and, and outlast us. This is Russia with it's a it's a it's a world power who 
is easing closer to China, you know, by the day and, and, and India, you know, this whole BRICS um, subject. And, and like this could spiral out of control, in my opinion. Where do you see like how do you see that this plays out? Yeah, a couple of things from what you said. It was an excellent comment. Um, that uh, first of all, the we is not us, right? And and I I, I I don't mean to quibble with you because the we is not even the military industrial complex. The we is a small group of neocons who've been on this gig since 2014 and probably beforehand. This is an extension of what happened under Obama when you had the same actors. You had Victoria Newland, you had Anthony Blinken, you had Jake Sullivan. They were all on Team Maidan in 2014 because they thought they saw the emergence of a rival to the hyperpower US that emerged after the Cold War. And this is the Wolfowitz Doctrine on steroids, which is that we will never allow another uh, power to rise and, and threaten our uni unipolarity. And that's what they saw happening with Russia and to a degree with China. And that's why they launched this cockamamie plan using Ukraine as a proxy, using the blood of Ukrainians essentially to oil their war machine their idea that we must break Russia up into pieces for a lot of reasons. One is a rival to our power, and two, because they have virtually unlimited natural resources in such a vast expanse of land. So this is a project that they have had, they had been working on uh, at least for eight years, at least since Maidan, I would say certainly back in 04 under Bush. And remember, Victoria Newland worked for Dick Cheney, mm -hmm. right? So she's... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> she, she'll play for both teams, for any team that is pro-war. Um, when they had the Orange Revolution in 2004, which also overthrew Yanukovych, just like the Maidan Revolution overthrew Yanukovych. So this is a project that they have had. And the one thing that I've learned, uh, that I learned working in Washington, D.C., in the foreign policy world for, for 12 years, is that there are small groups of extremely dedicated people and those people who have a singular focus can move mountains uh, in the foreign policy establishment given certain, um, given certain elements in being in place. Uh, and that's what you see here. So, um, so that's who's starting this. The military industrial complex is certainly not going to say, hey, hang on a minute. You know, we don't want this. You know, so there's a little bit of something in it for everybody, uh, the Republicans as well. Um, as to where I see it heading from the very beginning, and I remember the, when it happened, uh, I did not believe they would go in, uh, the Russians would go in. I uh, underestimated their resolve, but many others did too, including Zelensky himself, underestimated their resolve. They tried to tell us in December at a last ditch effort, look, here is a draft of some new kind of uh, uh, defense uh, you know, constructions uh, that, that everyone should be happy with, you know? Um, no Ukraine and NATO neutrality, et cetera, et cetera. Nothing, nothing very hairy. The U.S. laughed them, you know, just laughed them out of the ballpark. So when it first happened, I remember um, I, I pretty frequently uh, talked to and communicate with my friend Doug McGregor, who was, as you guys know, a colonel in the U.S. Army who drove a tank, you know, basically into Baghdad in 1991. He's a badass guy, but he knows a lot, and he's written a ton of books uh, about military strategy. Uh, and he's and his his thoughts from the very beginning were that you know Russia wins and NATO dissolves. And if anything, uh, he's been ignored, you know, in the mainstream for the most part. Uh, but if anything, he's being proven more correct uh, every day. And that's what we're seeing. We're seeing a Russian victory. And, and I was actually, we just published an article 
uh, on the Ron Paul Institute website that if I may beg your indulgence to suggest that your listeners uh, have a look at it. It's written by Will Shriver, uh, and it's called The Ontological Incoherence of American Imperial Exceptionism. And it's a, it's a long title, but the piece is really a seminal piece on what's happened and on the danger of the neocons being the ones uh, to pull the nuclear trigger when they realize that their bluff has been called uh, and that the U.S. and NATO are essentially hollow forces facing a real military for the first time, uh, certainly probably since Korea. So sorry, that's a long answer to your question. Oh, no, that makes perfect sense. And that's what I'm saying. It, it is. A, it is a real military. That was that's uh, exactly what I was trying to point out. And oh, you just love Putin. Yeah, <laughs> that's the answer to it. I mean, that's literally the answer. <laughs> what the hell? This was insane. Yeah, yeah. If you if you point any of these facts out, you're a, a Russian agent, and I mean, but that's nothing new, right? We've been called Russian agents well, since uh, twenty. Well, two years ago, it'd be you just love COVID. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, oh my God, I'm, the latest thing. No, as Matt was pointing out, though, yeah, that was uh, the one of the excuses that they gave when they took us down in 2018. So, I mean, this has been something that's been um, utilized as a scapegoat for, that. for yep. years now, and. Um, but, you know, speaking about, you know, just loving Putin and, and had to touch on this, Daniel, because, uh, I know that these tweets drew some controversy when you tweeted them out, but, uh, <laughs> it looks like on February 5th of this year, you, you tweeted out, oh my God, you admire Putin? Yes. No shit. I absolutely admire Putin. Suck on that. NAFO. <laughs> Putin is right. He actually protects his own national interests as opposed to Biden who only protects his crackhead son. And then you said Putin with an exclamation mark. I think there is another one too, but like, do you maybe want to give some explanation as to uh, what led you to, to make that tweet? Don't tell Dr. Paul I used a bad word. Really he never, ever, ever cusses. And I, I always try to be more like him, but sometimes I get mad. Those, the, those NAFO or NAFO guys, you know, it's all U.S. Intel run. It's, been, it's, it's a proven fact uh, that these guys originated in U.S. Intel. And what they do is they swarm down on people <clears throat> with hundreds and hundreds of tweets, uh, and then they mass report the person if he if he doesn't block or retaliate, uh, or if he retaliates, they definitely mass report, uh, and they uh, you know and they try to get people banned. They're not interested in a debate; they're interested in, get, in getting people banned. Um, millions and millions of dollars have been appropriated uh, for the psy war, you know, for the PR war. The all the PR firms in the Beltway are getting paid big time to push narratives, to push the main narrative, you know? So anything that challenges the main narrative gets piled on completely. So in that particular tweet, I was, I was most likely trolling the NAFO guys who were, who were jumping all over everywhere. Uh, but it is a fact. I mean, uh, it, despite what, what anyone thinks about it, and I would encourage people to try to find objective sources about it. But when you have a country like Russia, and I'm, you know, I'm, you know, I'm just going to say it. Uh, they sense an existential threat by NATO having spent eight years arming and training and arming to the hilt a country next door with the intent uh, of of attacking Russia. And they've said it. I mean, they tr NATO trained Ukrainians to fight Russia. Uh, if the shoe were on the other foot, if the Chinese were training the Mexicans and arming them to the hilt and teaching them how to take back Texas. Um, <clears throat> yep. We would notice. We had a freak out over yeah, some balloons, yeah. <laughs> right? 
right? I freak out over some balloons. So it's not beyond the realm of possibility that Russia would notice eight years of serious military buildup, including biolabs, uh, with the intent purposes of challenging Russia. And they've been very open about it and saying this is an existential threat that we have to deal with. They tried every avenue they could, diplomatic avenue, and they were rebuffed all along the way. So compare that to a Joe Biden uh, or, a, or an Obama who decided, oh, let's have an Arab Spring. Let's blow up the entire region and democracy will magically plant in its place. It has nothing to do with our national interests. Uh, supporting Ukraine over Russia has nothing to do with our national interests. Um, uh, if Russia took the entire Ukraine and, and maybe took a side of Poland <laughs> for dessert, it would not affect us in the slightest. That's why we should not be in NATO. NATO should not exist. It has nothing to do with us. So that's that's what I'm trying to say. At least there is some legitimate perception of national interest in Russia's reaction to the U.S. and NATO arming Ukraine. You can't say the opposite is true with the U.S. Oh, I agree wholeheartedly, man. Like, what is our um, what was our reasoning for invading Afghanistan and Iraq? Right, I, Iraq was lies, and Afghanistan was because of 9/11. Even though the hijackers were from Saudi Arabia. Right. And, yeah. and if we could, we could, we can even go back further down the timeline. And, and if we, yeah, you mentioned eight years ago, um, coming up on nine now of the, you know, the, the coup that the U S staged while Obama was in office in Ukraine. But I mean, the, the encroachment of NATO has been going on since the, the dissolution of the Soviet union. You know, this has happened. We've been the, Amer not, we, uh, uh, you know, America has been lying to Russia and, and like just, uh, breaking all of their promises and treaties for for three decades now, or four almost four decades since since the dissolution yeah. of the USSR, and they promised not to expand NATO any further. But you know they they soaked up another dozen countries completely surrounding the border, and only because the U.S. the United States geographical location with oceans on two sides is that not a threat to us? You know, and we only have Mexico and and Canada at our north and southern borders, but like that, that analogy that you just did, Ron Paul gave a, uh, an amazing speech like that in Congress about how the U.S. would react if if somebody like uh, like China, for instance, you know, started putting troops on our borders and then slowly started training their, you know, those 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 countries to on how to beat us. I mean, that's exactly what's been happening, not just for the eight years, but for for 30 years. And so the patience that Russia has shown in the and I'm going to be called the Russian asset for saying this, but the patience <laughs> that Russia has shown in the last the, the last three decades is is incomparable to anything that the U.S. has ever done. You know, someone sneezes in Syria and we invade them. Someone, you know, like the, the, the uh, some guy with a turban on in, in Somalia, like you know, sells a weapon to some other guy with a turban on, and we're we're drone bombing them. Like that, we have no leg to stand on when it comes to talk, telling countries who they can and can't invade because we're the worst offenders in the world. Yeah, Gaddafi passes wind and we're ready to. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's very true. And, you know, but the thing is, okay, I, 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 you know, like I have no problem with going for broke. If there really was a serious existential threat to the U.S., you know, obviously, I'm, I'm not a pacifist uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Um, if there was a real threat, if Russia was pounding the table like it, like in the days of Khrushchev with the means, said, we will bury you, 
Uh, and it was, and it had gobbled up the Balt. Well, they can have the Baltics. I'm sick of the Baltics, <laughs> but they start going for some of the countries I like. <laughs> I'm just, I'm, I'm being lighthearted here. But no, yeah. if they started doing it, you can see they were on the path. They are, these guys are on the path. Uh, they're, you know, they're ready. But that's not what the neocons want. Remember Condoleezza Rice. We can't let the smoking gun be a mushroom cloud. That's the whole BS lie that they've always said. You've got to stop them before they start. Well, that's very convenient because you believe you have some kind of God almighty wisdom to know exactly what the intentions are and you don't. And they're always wrong. The neocons are always wrong about everything. That's the only constant <laughs> in the universe is that the neocons will be wrong. Bill Crystal will be wrong no matter what he says. You know, he should open a consulting firm for investment advice and just do the opposite of what he says and you'll get rich. You know, so. So that's the thing. I mean, that's the thing. I'm, I, I, you know, if there was a legitimate threat, we should definitely address this. But it was all concocted, manufactured. Uh, it was a, it was the greatest case of projectionism, I think, in the history of the world. And just like the Republicans bought up the propaganda in two thousand and two and three to you know on the precipice of the Afghanistan and Iraq wars, um, the left is seems to be lapping at the dog bowl quite fervently with this uh, Ukrainian propaganda, <laughs> thinking that you know that their lives are under threat from Putin. They're like, oh, if Putin isn't stopped in Ukraine, you know, he's going to march forward and and take Russia. I mean, take France and Italy and England and. Like, no, man, <laughs> you clearly have no idea of any of the history of any of this. And that, I mean, that's ignorance is the, the, like the gasoline of the war machine, you know, mm -hmm. like that, it just, it, when you can convince so many people to, uh, to support a war because they have no idea what that war is about, then, uh, then you've already won. Right. <laughs> but like, and none of these none of these people ever ever been in the military. None of them have ever studied uh, military strategy. You know, they 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 have this idea. Well, Putin lost because he didn't gain more territory. You know, they they, they were very clear at the very beginning. This is not a war for territory. This is a war to destroy a threat, and that threat is the Ukrainian military and and the Nazis. And that's this is our goal. So every time you know when they lost Kherson, when they lost Kharkov, oh, Russia, uh, you know, Putin's back on his heels. This is not a war for territory. And that's why they still think that somehow Putin is going to take Poland. What the hell would he do with Poland? Like, who wants it? What would he do with France? Are they going to put, you know, 5 million people in there to occupy France? That's not what they want. Uh, and it would be impossible. If he actually, I would agree that Putin is a madman if that's what he said he wanted to do. And thankfully, he hasn't. So we can at least assume that he's a rational person. Right. But unlike or like we thought with with Ukraine and how he, we, we didn't think he was going to invade, you know, I think that every person has a breaking point. And I think that if we keep this pressure or the U S keeps this pressure and NATO, the NATO countries keep this pressure and keep pushing Putin into a corner. I, I think that it could, that there is a, a very, you know, possible, like a, a, a stark possibility that this could go nuclear and it could be a very bad thing. And I, I unfortunately, I don't think enough people understand that. <laughs> I actually wanted to touch on that for a second, because just last week, the U.S. actually advised all Americans to leave Russia, quote, immediately, quote, due to security risks. And just a few days ago, Putin suspended Russia's participation in the START nuclear disarmament pact uh, treaty. And I mean, both of these things feels like these are steps towards escalation. I mean, is that how you interpret it as well? Daniel, or is this more just kind of saber rattling right now? 
I think a little bit of both. I mean, I think Putin explained pretty well why he was suspending participation in the treaty. And it's very simple because it's a redo of what happened in Iraq. He said uh, the, the Biden administration officials have explicitly said that their goal is to strategic defeat of the Russian military. So why would we allow American inspector, uh, inspectors onto our most sensitive nuclear sites mm. to inspect if that's their stated goal? Uh, it makes no sense, and so we're not going to allow it. And that's, I mean, it, I'm sure you guys will remember, that's the whole reason Scott Ritter resigned as the chief UN weapons inspector for Iraq, because the CIA kept infiltrating his team to do targeting instead of doing inspection. And huh. he didn't, he, he wouldn't allow it, and he quit because of that. So it makes sense for Putin to say, hey, you can't send your spies over here looking for targets. Uh, you know, uh, we, can, we can talk about this when the smoke clears. Um, as for the U.S. Embassy, it's, it was kind of a head scratcher. Um, I thought maybe they were going to pull, try to pull something off. I don't think that's I don't I don't think that's their style. I think their style is is more of these propaganda things. Um, uh, I think there is going to be some real action. And I mean, as of our conversation right now, and this could be a provocation, but it looks like some kind of U Ukrainian move toward Transnistria um, uh, might be the next step, and that would that would be a very serious escalation. But you know, for 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 Ukraine, which is actually there's no such thing as Ukraine. It's it's the U.S. and NATO that are driving this force. Um, they they have to keep going forward, and that would be the next step. Uh, and it could be it could be a really strange and dangerous thing because you know that part of Transnistria has the largest weapons depot uh, in the entire uh, European continent. So a huge, massive, massive weapons uh, storage that started in the uh, right after World War II, uh, and it is um, a detonation. They say a detonation of that depot would be the equivalent of uh, uh, of Nagasaki and Hiroshima. Wow. Uh, nuclear bombs. So these guys are desperate for weapons. They're not getting the stuff they want. Um, if they go in there and screw that thing up, that's going to be that's going to. And they can go for broke. Imagine if that goes off. It's going to be Putin's fault no matter what. Uh, so I, I'm pretty worried right now. Yeah, and that, that's why I was, you know, like I, I earlier I had asked, like, how does this end? I I don't know, man. I like it. It's not going to fizzle out like Afghanistan. It's not. I mean. I don't see uh, we're putting troops in Taiwan right now, right? We're we're escalating <laughs> tensions between China. Like you said, we're scared of weather balloons. <laughs> like I, I have no idea where this goes from here. It's it's just there's so many unknowns, and, and we haven't been in a situation like this, like you said, since Korea. We we, we haven't faced an actual military threat since Korea, and that was much smaller than Russia. So. Uh, and and the the fact that there was no turnout, I mean that that there was such a small turnout at this anti-war rally that was bipartisan in Washington D.C. just doesn't give me that much hope, you know. And and in a in a quick and peaceful re resolution, which um, I want to ask you about that too. Did you see how the uh, former um, Israeli Prime Minister Naf Naf Naftali Bennett how he came out earlier this month and said and basically said how the U.S. Um, blocked the peace deal between Russia and Ukraine, and uh, like it was a it was yeah. a big story. The Hill ran it, a bunch of mainstream sites ran it, and then um, Business Insider came out and said, "No, that's not that's not what he said." <laughs> you know, like <laughs> he was joking, and, and everybody was oh, they were like, "Okay, that's not what he said." So there was the U.S. didn't try to block a peace agreement, but it that if you go read the actual articles. He, he totally did say that he has evidence that he said, you know, that this all happened. And yet still people aren't understanding that, that 
that the U.S. is actively blocking attempts at peaceful resolution. Like how yeah. lost is society that we've come to the point where we're blocking attempts at peaceful resolutions between two countries that could prevent complete nuclear devastation of the planet. Yeah. I mean, I can see, I can see why Bennett spilled the beans because the Israelis are in a huge bind when it comes to this. And they definitely depend on good terms mm -hmm. with both countries. Uh, both countries have large Jewish populations. Um, both countries are strategically important for Israel. Uh, the last thing they want is a break with Russia. Uh, and partly is because of Syria and a lot of other things. So if there's any country, I think, in the world, aside from the participants who, who want this thing over, it's the Israelis. This is just very, very potentially destabilizing. And I kind of think, no, Bennett's no dummy. Maybe he may be a little bit of an extremist, but he's no dummy. And I think that's why he spilled the beans. And you're right, it was weird because it came on like a like a freight train and then it just went off the rails and disappeared. This is like huge news. It should have been everywhere. Um, just like Seymour Hersh's story mm -hmm. should have been everywhere. Yeah. <laughs> Talk about living in a propagandized country. I was about to bring that up actually, because it seems like a huge story that yeah isn't getting any attention and i'm sure most of our audience is familiar with the story but like those who aren't here's some, some quick context uh basically the pulitzer prize winner and former star journalist at the new york times seymour hirsch suggested that the cia and the navy were involved in a covert op to sabotage and blow up uh this crucial pipeline which is nord stream 2 which is a, a natural gas pipeline that connects russia to germany in the baltic sea and the part about this, it seems, you know, particularly ominous is that there's footage of Biden from February of 2022 threatening the Nord Stream 2, saying that it will no longer exist. And when a, he was pressed by a reporter, he basically doubled down and said, I promise you, we'll be able to do it. We'll be able to, to blow it up or destroy it. So uh, in, in so many words, of course. And a month before that, the, the same person we were just talking about, uh, Undersecretary Newland had delivered basically the same message at the State Department um, and it had little press coverage, you know, and she said, I want to be clear with you today. If Russia invades Ukraine one way or another, the Nord Stream 2 will not move forward. So this was clearly premeditated, orchestrated by the U.S. and the Biden administration. Yet here we are again, like not hearing anything from the press, from the media, the mainstream outlets. Um, so like, have we have we turned the page as far as like collusion of media and government fascism? Or do you believe that, I mean, do you think this would have been something that would have been covered like 30 years ago by American press? Or uh, has the media always been this corrupt to the core? I think we would have seen more coverage. And I, and I think, and I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, put too much emphasis on this, but I think it deserves some mention, which is that, um, for all of his faults, Elon Musk's opening up Twitter has been a like a world-changing event because that's the only way you're seeing these kinds of stories. I'm sure Facebook is suppressing it to the hilt, all the other social media, um, even if independent media writes about it, like Substacks, uh, you can't find it unless you know you're on Twitter or something. Uh, so the fact that they've opened it up to this, I think, is is it's extremely important, and I think it makes him really enemy number one to the bad guys, whoever we want to call them, the globalists or whatever, not even the globalists, the neocons. So I think that's important, but you're right. The coverage is not there. I, the, 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 the most hilarious thing in the world was, I mean, 
Nobody doesn't know who Cy Hirsch is and how important his journalism has been for 50 some years. And when Reuters said, White House refutes right. bloggers claim about North right. Street Pipeline. I mean, that, the, it, it, that may have been someone just out of journalism school who'd never studied this guy, who knows what, but it's, that was like, <laughs> that's the depths, the, you know, the very, very bottom of the well of American journalism. It just so happened to be the same outlet that discredited the uh, Bennett piece and the Cy Hirsch piece, which was Business Insider. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Tell me. It's yeah, not and they used the tactic. Oh, Russia gleefully embraces Seymour Hirsch, you know, with his uh, conspiracy theory about the U.S. The, the the for the last two years, they literally were talking about stopping or by any means the Nord Stream pipeline. Like it wasn't, it's not like this came out of nowhere. For <laughs> Yeah, you're, you're right. I mean, they, they, the one thing they do have is hubris and that forces them to tell the truth sometimes. And the two that you, you mentioned are important, but also Anthony Blinken himself said, the destruction of the pipeline, I don't have the quote in front of me, but it brings a great opportunity for us to enter the energy markets in, in Europe. And of course, that's what it was all about. And Hirsch wrote about it too. Um, it was to break, the, the German-Russian rapprochement that was coming through the use of cheap, uh, uh, cheap natural gas, cheap pipeline gas uh, that was fueling the German economy and uh, fueling the industrial backbone of Europe, and that the, the the U.S. had a strategic intent to destroy that and make sure that Germany and Russia did not continue to cooperate, and that's what they did. And Blinken admitted it. This is a great opportunity for us to sell our oil from ships at like three times the cost or 10 times the cost or whatever. You know, it's a, it's yeah. a mafia tactic, right? You know, just, you got to take out the Tatalias, man. <laughs> yeah. It's crazy. And that business insider article cited Bellingcat, you know, who, who is like the, the, <laughs> the, the, the arbiters of truth, right? Cause they, 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 they discredited all the claims about white helmets and um, you know, they're, they're, <laughs> closely tied to Facebook intelligence gathering. Like, yeah, they're, they're the ones, they're the pinnacle of truth when it comes to, to saying, you know, who did what and global affairs. Yeah. May as well use the Atlantic council, the German Marshall fund. What was that thing that they had? The, um, the thing that got blown up recently, the, um, the German Marshall front funds, um, disinformation outfit, uh, that, uh, Matt Taibbi destroyed in a Twitter file. Anyway, um, yeah, yeah. Speaking of propaganda, I mean, I don't know if you guys happened to catch this. Uh, yesterday, NATO tweeted out some like cartoon level propaganda and basically on a tweet that's gone viral now. But the tweet has an image of like a, a battered and war torn neighborhood, I would guess, probably in Ukraine. And the text that accompanies it is uh, the part that people are finding problematic, which says uh, Ukraine is hosting one of the great epics of the century. We are Harry Potter and William Wallace. We are the Navi and Han Solo. We are escaping from Shawshank and blowing up the Death Star. We're fighting with Parkonens and challenging Thanos. And, uh, you know, this along with the other propaganda from outlets like CNN who continue calling the conflict in Ukraine Russia's war in Ukraine. I mean, they're obviously intentionally framing this in a certain light, you know, and uh, I guess it's just strange to me. How does this continue to be effective? And do you have any hope that maybe the new generations are starting to kind of see through some of this propaganda and, and misinformation coming from the establishment? Uh, they're doing bong hits in Brussels, I think, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
on, on, interestingly enough, on Twitter, Pedro Gonzalez, who is with uh, uh, Chronicles Magazine, I think, he does a great job. And I haven't gotten through the entire thing, uh, but he breaks down uh, not just this series of tweets by NATO, but all about how uh, the U.S. has been uh, has been uh, using, uh, like they call it, civil society 2.0. And I, I have a bookmark because I want to go back and read it when we're done talking. But he does a really good job of breaking the whole thing down. But yeah, it was it was weird. It really it kind of reminded me of something Zelensky might have put out after a couple too many sniffs of his <laughs> his favorite little <laughs> pick me up. <laughs> it was weird. Yeah, and meanwhile, you have uh, I saw Ford Fisher. Um, he was at the DC rally, and YouTube demonetized his video that just covered the rally because someone in the background of one of the videos was holding up a Zelensky sign that had a fake picture of Zelensky snorting coke. Oh, so they like they, they censored him because of that, like because he he filmed like this. Not even he wasn't like interviewing the guy or anything like that. You know, it was just a pic that. The guy appeared in the video, and so they 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 censored it for him. Journalism's dead. Yeah, those algorithms are getting really good too. Jesus, that's insane. Yeah. Well, um, we are getting towards the the end of the podcast, but I have maybe more of a broad question. Maybe I don't know, change the the mood a little bit here. But like, how hopeful are you that a new anti-war movement will be reinvigorated and? Are you kind of in the opposite camp where like, do you see propaganda and, and the social engineering just a bit too complex and I don't know, maybe sophisticated for the average American who's likely working a couple jobs just to keep their head above water or effectively distracted? Do you feel like we could build some momentum to apply pressure on the political leaders to end all this money laundering, the all this stuff, the international crimes like blowing up pipelines? Uh, obviously, this is a proxy war. So people don't seem as interested. And as you had mentioned, you know, it's not necessarily hitting them in the pocketbooks uh, overtly anyway. But like, are, are you hopeful that we can reinvigorate a, a new anti-war movement? Well, you know, Dr. Paul is the consummate optimist, you know, and he's, um, and I tend, I tend toward pessimism um, and depressiveness, <laughs> but that's just my nature. Um, the one of the things when I feel optimistic, I feel, <clears throat> and Dr. Paul mentions this too, that I feel frustrated at myself for, for being such a flawed messenger you know i wish my communication style were better i wish that i was more clever in the way i did things you know because i do think this is absolutely our moment uh, this would be the time this is the time uh, for us to get maximum attention uh, for our position not just um, against war but against the state in general and all the things that the state does using war as its cover uh, you know, with regard to our, our privacy, with regard to our civil liberties and our financial privacy and economic freedom. This should be our time. The state is the most oppressive it's been, I think, in the history of the U.S., uh, maybe, you know, with the exception of, of being in wartime. But um, it's hard to um, – I, I just wish that I were better <laughs> at, at conveying the message. I, I think we have a chance. I, what I – took away from talking to people like Max and, and others on the left, Garland Nixon, I met him for the first time, he's such a cool dude, um, is that there is a will there to put aside things and to not let this thing crack apart. I, I just, I think it's gonna take a lot of work. Um, un but unfortunately I did, have, I did have a lunch when I was in DC this past week uh, with someone who's been around the block, and I'm not gonna say the name, but someone that's been around the block for you know six decades. 
and he, what his comment about the rally and the poor turnout is people don't gonna i'll give you a quote uh, no one's gonna give a shit until the bodies start coming home to the u.s so and this is a guy who's with us on on most things but he's uh, had a lot a lot of experience in the military and that may be true but that doesn't give us an excuse not to try our best with the limited tools that God has given us to communicate, uh, to do something before that happens. Well said. And I was certainly encouraged that the left and libertarians, and I would, I would assume there were some people there from the right as well. Uh, there was different factions coming together for this, this very important issue. And um, it seems like the people who put it on, the, I think there was a couple like people who initially had this idea and they're the ones who organized everything. Uh, in fact, I just saw they had like a, a little group on Twitter uh, having like an audio conference thing. So I, I feel like they're very committed. I don't think this is going away anytime soon. And this is hopefully just the beginning. Absolutely. Amen. All right, free thinkers, this episode is nearing its end. Just a reminder, we've been working extremely hard to bring you some of the most powerful voices in the truth liberty movement. We work tirelessly for you to bring these concepts to the masses, and to educate and wake up those who continue to sleep. Please don't forget to consider donating or subscribing if you appreciate the work we do. It's becoming more and more difficult to do this, and we can no longer depend on social media advertisers of big tech monetization. Our support network is you. So help us rebuild this organization by going to our website, thefreethoughtproject.com, and at the top you'll find tabs for our memberships and donations. Also, please review and rate this podcast if you enjoyed it. Thank you, Freethinkers. If you got anything you want to you plug on here, any website where people could find you? I mean, obviously, everybody knows the Ron Paul Institute, but if you have anything else, man, we'd uh, love to hear it. Sure. Well, we do the Ron Paul Liberty Report every Monday through Friday at noon Eastern live on Rumble. So we'd love to have people tune in to, uh, to the program. RonPaulInstitute.org is our website. All right. Well, Daniel, your work and experience is vast, and your efforts for peace and prosperity have been decades in the making. So thank you for your strength advising the great Ron Paul during the, the great years of the Ron Paul Revolution, and now with the work that you're doing with them at the Ron Paul Institute. So it's been an honor to have you on the, the show and talking to you. Very much appreciate your time today. Thank you so much. It was great to be with you guys.